You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Good morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is good to see you. It is good to be back. Teresa and I were away for a couple weeks uh, celebrating 40 years of marriage together. And uh, I know, I know. I know you're looking at me and thinking, boy, they must have got married when they were in grade school. (laughs) I wish, I wish, I wish. We we went to Europe and uh, uh, visited some amazing places, museums, cathedrals, basilicas, uh, places where history is so deep and so rich. uh, and when I go to places like that, I, I see how connected I am to history and how our lives, the way we view the world, the way we believe, what we think, really was largely shaped by the past, by, by, by daring people. I think history is shaped by daring people who were daring enough to to, to be different. They were daring enough to think differently. They were daring enough to believe in a new idea or, a, or to fight for a cause worth fighting for. Teddy Roosevelt said, never throughout history has a man who lived a life of ease left a name worth remembering. And that challenges me. It challenges me to ask the question, am I being daring enough with my life? Really, am I being daring enough with my, am I daring enough to put forth the effort needed to right a wrong? Am I being daring enough to challenge conventional thinking, to take the risks necessary to move the needle more toward righteousness and not to perpetuate the status quo or worse yet, cause harm? It, it makes me realize that our stories have the power to shape other people's stories, perhaps for generations to come. And you and I may not be remembered in the history books or have anything in the museum that portrays what we've done, but, but we are influencing people and, 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 and we're touching lives. It might be your own children, your own offspring. It might be your neighborhood. It might be your community. It might be your workplace. Whatever that is, <clears throat> you are making a difference. You are making an impact. And sometimes the impact is for great. Sometimes it's not so great. So <clears throat> here in the middle of summer, and what a soggy summer it is. <clears throat> I was two weeks away and not one drop of rain. I get back on the 4th of July and it's been nothing but rain. <clears throat> But, but on this first Sunday in July, we're beginning a new series called Stop at Nothing. And, and, and this theme over this past year has been all in, the idea that Jesus has gone all in for us, so let's go all in for God. And so now we're looking at some of the early martyrs of the church, those who really stopped at nothing to make an impact and make a difference in the world. So Uh, we're going to revisit some of those earliest martyrs of the church. Namely, we're going to look at John the Baptist today. We're going to look at Stephen and Paul. Um, It was one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, 
who was converted to Christianity partly because he witnessed Christians who suffered and refused to recant their faith in the face of persecution. It was Tertullian who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he meant there was that when these people die for what they believe in, rather than the persecutors stomping out their religion, it was causing more people to believe in the validity. It's like, how could they believe in something so strong that they'd be willing to die for it? There must be something true to that. That's how Tertullian came to the faith. And so he was making an argument to the Roman Empire saying, you know, if you don't legitimize this Christian faith because it was illegal in the empire at the time, you're only going to make it stronger. So, so what you're doing by persecuting them is creating the opposite effect because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I'm also reminded of Jesus' final words before the ascension when he told his disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And I know we all want power, don't we? We want power. Who doesn't want power? But notice what the power was for. You shall receive power to be my witnesses. And the Greek word for that is the word marturion, where we get the word martyr. You're going to receive power to be martyrs for me. Oh, I don't know if I want that kind of power, right? I want the power to be able to rule over, to be able to control things, to be able to get what I want and have my way. I don't want power to suffer. And that's what Jesus promised them the Holy Spirit would give them, power to bear witness to Jesus' sacrificial death and life and resurrection. And so they would be that, and they would extend that to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here we are at the ends of the earth, literally from where that took place. And we are still feeling the, the repercussions of the earthquake of Christ's death and resurrection. Though Stephen is the first official martyr of the church to the resurrection of Jesus, John the Baptist died for what he believed in and had far more impact than most people would realize. The way he lived, his message, the circumstances of his death hold great lessons for all of us who would dare to leave a mark for good in our world. So I want to take some time this morning and I want to just retell the story of John the Baptist, if you don't mind. I've always considered him a puzzling character. John the Baptist was a little odd. He was an outlier. Um, he, like Elijah and the other prophets, said wore clothing made of camel hair, a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. He lived out of town. He lived out in the wilderness. He survived and was somewhat odd, but he was daring. And he stopped at nothing to fulfill his destiny. In fact, it was interesting on our trip, several places, there were paintings of John the Baptist. Uh, I should have put them up there for you. There was a sculpture in the Louvre of the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I thought, maybe not good for Sunday morning, but very interesting nonetheless. <laughs> so I'm inspired by John the Baptist for several reasons. And if you're following along in the, in the church app, you'll see the notes there. You can fill in and take notes. And I always encourage you, if you're not downloaded the church app, Riverside Church app, go ahead and do that. Uh, and uh, 
uh, uh, if you're on your digital device, just don't give in to the temptation to start surfing the web. I mean, unless it's that boring. If it's that boring, then go ahead. I'll give you permission to do it. But, but John the Baptist, number one, stopped at nothing to call people back to God. Every one of the Gospels talks about John the Baptist. His life was very intertwined with that of Jesus. But let's, look, let's first look at Luke chapter 3, where it says, and begins to tell the story of John the Baptist. And notice the context in which he, Luke tells the story. It begins by saying, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. Now, aren't you inspired by that? <laughs> During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So that's John the Baptist. I included that in the message because it's in the gospel. And why is it in the gospel? Because it shows us that this is a real person lived in real time in the middle of real political, geopolitical, historical situations. The story is not a myth. The story is not fiction. It is a real story. And in this real world in which John lived, he dared to speak up. In tumultuous times, when emperors ruled with an iron fist, when local governors and rulers were appointed by the emperor, not elected by the people to oversee the welfare of the populace and to maintain order in the empire, rebellion was deterred by the most brutal of means, crucifixion. John's countrymen, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jewish people of Israel, longed for a redeemer who would come and restore Israel's independence. He would come and he would rule the people with righteousness. This Messiah would appear, the prophets foretold, when the people returned back to God. When the people came back to God, when their, the nation would, re, would achieve this standard of moral purity and holy righteousness, then the son of righteousness would come and deliver them from their enemies. That's the setting in which John came. And notice it goes on to say, so he went into the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, he was a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, the rough places become level ways, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So John the Baptist comes in and he fulfills this prophecy of Isaiah about a Messiah, the, the one who's gonna prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And his message was simple. It was simple. Repent and be baptized. And what that means is simply this. God wants you back. Turn back to God. Baptism was this symbolic act of washing away one's sins. And, 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 and in this, uh, 
Luke is, 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 is quoting the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40. Actually, John, when he's preaching, he's, he, or Luke, I guess, he's writing this about John, and he says that uh, Isaiah's message, if you ever follow, read Isaiah, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is all about the judgment of God on people because of their rebellion. And then the last half, the second part of Isaiah, the next 40 chapters, beginning in chapter 40, is all about how God is going to make a way for them to come back to him. That God's love and mercy will eventually overcome the wrath of God and the people can turn back to God. And so this is the message of Isaiah. This is the purpose, I mean, of John the Baptist. This is the purpose of John the Baptist was to be this person telling people it's time to come back to God. The valleys filled, the mountains made low, the crooked paths made straight um, and level speaks of how everyone is gonna be on level ground when it comes to returning back to God. We all come back to God on the same ground. There's no rich or poor. There's no black or white. There's no Greek and Gentile. There's no male or female. All of us come back to God on the same terms and level ground. And God's gonna remove the obstacles, the mountains, the valleys, the crooked ways. God's gonna remove it and make it easy, make it possible for everyone. And notice he said, all flesh shall see the salvation of God, meaning not just Jewish people, but non-Jews alike, those who don't even, haven't heard of Jehovah and the story of Moses will also be invited to come back to God. In other words, God's gonna throw the doors open wide for people to return to God if they would just repent and turn and come back to God. Luke goes on and he writes, so John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, notice this message, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree, it doesn't produce good fruit or cut down and throw into the fire. So his message is this message of judgment but it's also about the salvation from judgment if you would simply turn back to God. And the good news is good news because it saves you from the bad news. And if you don't understand the bad news, the good news isn't quite so good, is it? And so he tells them about the judgment that may come. And ultimately, the judgment came on Israel whenever the Roman Empire eventually came and totally flattened the temple and destroyed it and killed, wiped out the people in 70 AD. So there was a literal fulfillment of this to the people too. But notice it says that, uh, that the whole Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem went out to him. And, 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 um, and so this is, this is in John's gospel, he says that. And so Mark records that, that, or Mark records that the whole Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem went out to him. In other words, his message resonated with everybody. He was this guy, but the country folk and the city folk, the blue states and the red states, 
both resonated with his message of repentance. We all need to get right with God. Not just those people and, 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 and I'm okay, but they need to come back to God. All of us. So there was this sense that it was connecting with the whole nation and people of all statuses and all locations were believing in this. And what was his message? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, I thought repentance just meant feeling sorry for what you do. Right? Isn't that what repentance means? Just confessing what you did and saying, God, I'm sorry. Can I have a free pass? Because that seems to be what we've reduced repentance to in our generation, isn't it? But he calls people to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Well, what does that mean? And that's what the people ask. So what does it mean to bear fruit? Well, notice what he goes on to say. And the people ask, so what should we do then? The crowds ask John. And John gets very specific here. First of all, he says, this is what repentance looks like. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the person who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors, the most despised of the countrymen, of their peers, came to be baptized. And they said, teacher, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to. Why would he tell them that? Because it was customary for tax collectors to not just collect what Rome demanded, but to collect more so they could pocket it themselves, basically betraying their own countrymen. And then the soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. And be content with your pay. Oh my goodness, that's, that's really radical there, right? <clears throat> what is he saying here? What do we take from this? Number one, I think repentance is more than just telling God your sins and feeling sorry for doing them. Confession is just the beginning of repentance. It's not the end of repentance. Repentance without true change is merely asking God to excuse your sin rather than seeking God to deliver you from your sin. Note how specific John's instructions are to the people to repent. Very similar to Jesus telling the rich young ruler that they would ask him, how do you inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the textbook answer say? Love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus said, that's good. Now go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Well, maybe not. I thought it was just believing the right things. Does it mean I have to do the right things too? And this is John's message. And the people, were, they're eating it up. They realize that we don't want to live under the heavy hand of the Romans any longer. And if we're going to get delivered, let's get right with God because then God will save us. Notice that money is at the core of so much of this repentance. Share your clothing and food with the poor. Don't collect more. Don't extort people. You see, the good news of God's forgiveness should ultimately turn into good news for the poor also. 
It's not just good news for the rich to get richer. It's good news so the rich will be generous with their wealth and help the poor and the mountains will be made low and the valleys will be brought high and everybody will be ready for the presence in the kingdom of God. And that's a radical message that John the Baptist was preaching. So what about us? What about you? What about me? If John was preaching this message today, would you be ready to turn back to God? Oh, I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer. No, I'm talking about, are you ready to really live for God? To stop at nothing, to really live for God? Are you ready for your life to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and not just say, I'm sorry for my sins and I prayed a prayer and so I can go out and live the way I want to live? Because John's message had tangible, um, measurable results in people's lives. Is the Spirit calling you to turn away from certain behaviors that you know are keeping you from living fully devoted to God? Here's the thing. John stopped at nothing to call people back to God. And so it begs the question, what's stopping me from returning to God? What's keeping me from returning to God? Second thing about John that inspires me is this. He stopped at nothing to elevate Jesus above himself. John chapter one, Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites to, to just do an investigation. This John the Baptist who's out there baptizing people in the Jordan. You know, why don't you go out and check him out? He's getting a lot of popularity. He's getting a lot of press. People are coming back. Their lives are changed. You know, I don't know. I'm a little worried about this guy. So they sent these people to go out and investigate John the Baptist. And uh, they asked who he was. And he confessed freely. This is in John chapter 1, beginning verse 19. He says, I'm not the Messiah. And they continued, then who are you? Are you Elijah? No. Are you a prophet? No. And then the Pharisees who had been sent to question him said, why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or you're not Elijah or not the prophet? I baptize with water, Jesus replied, but among you stands one that you do not know and he's the one who will come after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Hmm. Later, when, when John and Jesus were both baptizing people in the Jordan after John baptized Jesus, John's disciples, because John had his set of disciples, they were getting concerned because Jesus was growing in popularity and more people were now going to Jesus to get baptized. And oh my, how we hate that his numbers are higher than my numbers, you know? Ego can get involved when it comes to counting numbers, can it? And John the Baptist sees these numbers of Jesus growing and his numbers declining and his disciples are getting concerned that, you know, our church is declining and the church down the road is really getting bigger. What are we going to do about that? And John the Baptist said, hey, a person can only receive what's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I was sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. 
Tell you what, it takes a bigger man to recognize that other people have a more important place or role than they do and willing to lift up the other person's role. You see, John did not go out to make a name for himself. He went out to elevate the name of Jesus. He didn't let his ego get in the way of Jesus. And I think that that speaks to us today also. Because I think a lot of what we do is more to feed ego than it is to proclaim the goodness and grace of Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done for me. Look at what Jesus is doing. Does your ego keep you from pointing others to Jesus? Man, look at my status. Look at my income. Look at the car I drive. Look at the job I have. Look at the... And and, and we're always sizing ourselves up with other people. And we get puffed up and we have to think that we have to be bigger and better and badder than other people in order to be esteemed. In the kingdom of God, it's the opposite. It's all about saying, it's all about Jesus. You know, God has blessed me. God has been good to me. I realize I have responsibility. I want to tell you how much God loves you. I think as God, as I found God, it's changed my life. And yeah, maybe my life has been a lot better because I've not been doing some of the things that could have destroyed me. Maybe God delivered me from the things I used to do and my life has taken a turn for the better. But it's all about what Jesus is inside of me doing. It's not about me. To God be all the glory. That's the life that we need to live. It's easier for you to brag on yourself than it is to brag on Jesus. But when you need to be in the spotlight, Jesus is gonna be in the shadows. And so it begs the question, how can we do better at stepping out of the spotlight and letting Jesus get the spotlight for the good things that are going on in our life? Because that's what glory, that's how we give glory back to God. John stopped at nothing to elevate Jesus. And so we must ask the question, what's keeping you and me from pointing other people to Jesus? What's, What's stopping us from letting the spotlight shine on Jesus and what Jesus is doing in our life. How can we do that? And then we get to the final part of John's story. And this is interesting, his, his story that gets to the head on the platter. The other paintings I saw mostly in museums were all about this event in John's life. And the point is, the thing that inspires me is that John stopped at nothing to speak truth to power. Didn't matter if you were in power, if you were a peasant, you need to repent and come back to God. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, if you're educated or uneducated, you need to come back to God. You need to turn back to God. It didn't matter who was in his audience. His message never changed in order to get the favor of people who were in power. Notice what it says in Matthew 11. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds, I'm going to go here first because this is interesting. He was in prison. This is why he was in prison. But something happened that I found very interesting about this. And this is sort of a side road here. 
a little detour in the story. But when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you really the one who is to come? This is the man who was putting the spotlight on Jesus, the one who said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. This is the one that the dove came on when he baptized him, heard the voice from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. John evidenced him. John is giving. And then when times get tough and John is in prison and he doesn't know his fate, he starts to wrestle with some doubts. He starts to grapple with questions. I found that very interesting because can I be honest with you? I wrestle with doubts. I struggle with questions. I don't have all the answers. There are things that puzzle me that I wonder how can this be true? And, 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 and I'm thinking, well, if John the Baptist, who, who was there firsthand and struggled with doubts, then maybe, maybe it's okay to wrestle, to ask the hard questions. He says, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? But here's the thing. He didn't let his doubts stop him from continuing to proclaim his message. But I've always, I've come to the conclusion to believe that faith and doubt are not incompatible. Faith and doubt are not incompatible. In fact, I would say, if you didn't have any doubts, you wouldn't need faith, right? Right? So, so, so let's not be afraid if we have those questions and we have those doubts. Don't let them keep you from saying, I'm not sure about this, but I am sure about Jesus and I want to follow his message and I want to believe in this. And if it's true, then I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to live like that. And if it's not true, I'm not worse off because of it. <clears throat> Note the proof that Jesus gives that he is the Messiah it says, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. The evidence of Jesus' Messiah was the change that took place in people's lives. The healings that took place the poor who are being helped. If a tree is known by its fruit, then the fruit of Jesus' validity is the transformation that takes place in the life of human beings who put their faith in him. And so you are evidence of Jesus by the change that takes place in your life and the transformation that God brings to you. So Mark 6, several places this story is told, and I'm going to look at Mark's account because I find it very, very fascinating. And we're almost done here, but let's follow along here. Notice what it says. I'm going to tell the whole story, and then we're going to talk about it for a second. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, 
For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So here's John, this wild and crazy itinerant preacher going to this guy who's in a position of authority and says, uh-uh-uh, that marriage of yours isn't legit. For John had been saying, it's, it's not lawful for you. So Herodias, his wife, nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and protected him. Isn't that interesting? That, that doesn't come out in the other Gospels. Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Wow. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, <clears throat> Herod gave a great banquet for all his high officials, his military commanders, and the leading people of Galilee. And when the daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And so the king said to the girl, probably in a little bit of an inebriated state, Ask me for anything that you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Obviously, this was a, uh, an exaggeration. But she went out and she said to her mother, Mommy, 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 he gave this promise to me. What should I ask for? She said, now's my chance. Let's silence this guy who keeps preaching against my marriage to him. Ask him for the head of John the Baptist. At once the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But he said this in front of his friends, in front of these important people. He had to save face. His ego got in the way because he said, because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl. She gave it to her mother. And on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Talk about stopping at nothing. Talk about speaking truth to power to the degree that it costs you your life. That's John the Baptist. Let's talk quickly about who was this Herod, and this is going to be confusing. I give you a heads up. This Herod was not Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king over Judea during the time of the birth of Jesus. Herod the Great was appointed by the emperor, right? And so he's over this region, and Herod the Great, um, you know, was Jewish, but also capitulating with Rome. You know, obviously, you're going to compromise your faith because of power, and so the power seduced him to being this emissary, even though he was Jewish, for the people. When Herod the Great died, rather than giving his kingdom to one of his children, one of his sons, and he had several wives, four or five wives, he divided his kingdom up into four different parts, and he divvied bits and pieces of it up to other people, namely Herod 
Antipas, who was this Herod. And uh, he was a tetrarch, not a king. He was, the king of the Jews was Herod the Great. This king was the tetrarch, a governor of Galilee where Jesus grew up and John the Baptist grew up. These guys were cousins. They were close in age. And in the Jordan Valley and the area across the Jordan Valley. Herod, the king of the Jews, Herod the Great, was the one who who uh, commanded the slaughter of the innocents after Jesus was born and the Magi came and he said to kill everybody under two years of age, all the men, all the boys. And so Herod Antipas expected to replace his dad after his dad, Herod the Great, died. And, and, and yet he didn't get that, but he always wanted to be king. He always wanted to be the person in power. Though he was Jewish, he was sympathetic to John the Baptist's message as we read in that story He also wanted to have the power that his position could give him. Well, here's the thing. This is where it gets really confusing. Herod Antipas, this one, visits his brother Philip, who wasn't given any of the kingdoms, any of the realm, and he falls in love with Philip's wife, Herodias, who, by the way, was the daughter of another brother of theirs. So Philip married his niece, Herodias, Herod the Great, took her away from Philip and was also his his half-niece. The Herodian family tree looks more like a pile of spaghetti. I mean, it would make a great soap opera if you read the story of them. I'm not going to go much further into that. So when, 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 when he had this marriage to his niece, who was also a former wife, who divorced her husband, Philip, because he had no power. She divorced the one who had no power to marry the one who had power. And, you know, obviously this is her bread and butter to stay married to him. John the Baptist comes on and says, you should never have married her because our Jewish law says you can't. I know the Roman law says you can't, but the Jewish law says you can't. John's trying to live in both worlds. He's trying to be a good Jew. He's trying to be able to keep his power. And he's wavering between, do I repent? Do I listen to him and divorce this wife? But this wife of mine, you know, she's pretty hot. And she also uh, doesn't like John and I'm going to keep her. And so, you know, the story and how it all ended up. Isn't it fascinating? But this is real life. You can't look at our story and say that there aren't the same things happening in our world today. And what is the role of the church? What is the role of believers? I think we have to always be people who have our feet deeply anchored in Scripture, in God, in holiness and righteousness, and following Jesus, and being able to see and to speak out and speak the truth, the power, no matter who the powerful are, whether they're on our side or not on our side. Christians need not get co-opted by forces of power, 
when we have chosen to rather speak faith and truth and join power and use power to manipulate and influence people rather than persuade people by a living testimony of what Christ has done in our life, when we lift Jesus up, when we cease to lift Jesus up and lift up people who are in power over Jesus, we compromise our story, we compromise our faith, we compromise our message. And John the Baptist never compromised his message. That's why the church should be separated from the state. Any time in history, as you look back and you visit these cathedrals and these basilicas and the Vatican and all these places, and you see the vast wealth accumulated by powerful people who co-opted religion for their purposes and stole from the people and abused and, 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 and martyred people. The church story, the history of the church is replete with powerful people executing other people who were Christians for not believing exactly the same way that they did. The Inquisitions. In other words, folks, we live in a time where we need to step out of the fray and look and say, is this good or bad? Is this truth or evil? Is this right or wrong? And it doesn't matter who it is and what party they belong to and what, what, what power they have. We need to be able to be objective and not be co-opted and used for political purposes because we lose our voice. Yeah, vote, yes, do. Vote your conscience, do all that. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying, don't put your head in the sand and compromise what you believe because you might get what you want from someone or others who are not living right for God and not going to be the people that are people that you would want to follow with your life. There are no perfect people. There are no perfect people. We need to speak the truth in love and we need to do what's right as the people of God without fear. We need to stop at nothing to lift up Jesus and not let Jesus be used. You see, the church grew most rapidly when it was in the minority, but when the emperor took the church and made it legitimate and then said, this is my religion, and everybody had to conform to that, the church lost its authentic voice to persuade people to follow Jesus and use power and control to manipulate. We need the people who have faith in God and live for Jesus and not for any other person. Can anybody say amen to that? John the Baptist made history because he stopped at nothing to bear witness to Jesus. And so what's keeping you? What's stopping you from returning back to God with your whole heart? Maybe today's the day for you to hear John's message, to turn back to God, come back to God. What's stopping you from sharing your story and lifting Jesus up and putting the spotlight on Jesus so that people can see Jesus in you? It's Christ in you. No longer I who lives, Paul said, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself and died for me. That's putting the light on Jesus. What's stopping you 
from shining the light in dark places, whether it be in the job or in the workplaces and saying, you know what, I'm going to speak truth to power. I'm going to blow the whistle on this, this, this situation. I'm going to do this and I'm going to pay the price to do this. That's the John the Baptists that stop at nothing to right or wrong, to turn things back to God, to shine a light on Jesus. Those who stop at nothing to bear witness to Jesus make history. Would you bow your head with me, please? In just a few minutes, we're going to receive communion together. Scripture says that we should examine our hearts before we do that. Not to examine ourselves to see if we are holy and righteous enough to be able to take it, but are we in a place where we're humbly accepting the fact that these elements, the bread, the cup, that these elements represent the person of Jesus Christ. And when we partake of these elements, we are basically saying, I need Jesus in me. I need Jesus to feed me, to fill me. I need the life of Jesus in me. And I realize that his body, that his blood, his body became sin. His blood was shed for my forgiveness, but not just for me to be sorry for what I did, but for me to be a transformed person. So today's a great day to make a new start in your life. Today's a great day to say, yeah, you know what? I've been letting too many things keep me from being all that God wants me to be and making the impact that, that I know God wants me to be. So today, I'm going to ask Christ to fill me once more with his spirit, to help me live for him, to be right before God. If you're here this morning and you want to do that, just why don't you pray along with me and say something like this, Jesus, I need you. I confess to you that I am a sinner. I've fallen far short. The person that I know that I can be with your help by the power of your spirit. And so I need your spirit today in me. I want to be a person who stops at nothing to make this place a better place by the power of God. I want to give glory to Jesus and let Jesus make true change and transformation in my life and in the lives of those that come in my path. God, use me. Help me to be inspired by John the Baptist and those who made a big difference in this world because of their faith in Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www dot riversideconnect dot org